He's a clinical professor of leadership in the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, where his teaching and coaching rating averaged 96 out of 100. He's also the founder of the award-winning Lee's Three Habit System, which helps motivated professionals and organizations build stronger relationships and achieve greater happiness. He's the author of The Wisdom of Walk-Ins, Seven Winning Strategies for College, Business, and Life. During the past three decades, he has transformed himself from a business person into a performance improvement specialist. He previously held a variety of leadership roles in Fortune 500 corporations, a big four accounting and consulting firm, and a major research university. Most importantly, he is a proud husband, parent, and a great friend. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with Paul Corona. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Curvebender's book, Chapter 4, Accelerated Relevancy. What sets you up to be sustainably relevant is a thirst for lifelong learning. Lifelong learning is one of the most valuable traits of the most successful leaders I've ever met. They seldom think of themselves as an expert in anything, but rather an eternal student of their passion. They thrive on the continual learning and growth process, which helps them create enormous value in both their brands, in their organizations, but also in the groups they belong to. Here are just some of the characteristics I've observed around lifelong learners. They have an insatiable seeking for knowledge. They are relational learners. They immerse themselves in experiences and pursue those very consistently. They're also proactive educators. Lifelong learners who sustain their relevance are driven by the outcomes of their learnings and their growth. Read more of this excerpt in our blog at norgroup.com slash blog. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is a friend, MG100 colleague, joking aside, somebody that I look up to, a great sounding board and a good accountability partner. Paul Corona, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. It's great to be here and all those feelings are mutual. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So Paul, for those that may not know as much about you, your background, can you just share a few minutes about where you've been, what you've done and how you've arrived here? Sure. Glad to do that. 
I am a full-time clinical faculty member at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, where I teach and coach leadership development. And prior to that, I've had a, essentially a 35-year career transformation. I joke with people, I used to do real work for a living before I became an educator. So during the past 35 years, I've basically transformed myself from a business person into a facilitator and coach. And during that time, I held a variety of leadership roles in Fortune 500 companies, one of the big four accounting and consulting firms, a couple major research universities. And I've essentially followed my heart nor instead of my head. And that happened in my 30s. So now I get to do this leadership development work at a place like Kellogg. And it's just a great honor. And I feel so fortunate. And on top of all that full-time work I do at Kellogg, as a serious hobby, I do leadership coaching for executives and directors who want to be truly fulfilled. Not just successful on paper, but truly fulfilled. That's me. I love that, that you followed your heart and not necessarily your head, which by the way, you don't typically hear that from academia. Talk about an example or two of that. What would that feel like? And give us an example of it. Sure. I like that you said, what would that feel like? Because I think it is a feeling. And folks like you and I, what we do for a living is largely a rational, intellectual, productivity, metrics-driven experience. And that's great. So for me, it's an and. And when you follow your heart, like I eventually did in my 30s, you are feeling fulfilled, happy, joyous, because you're leveraging your strengths, you're pursuing your passions, you're working from a position of talent rather than from a position of necessity where we're only having to make money to pay bills, whatever our bills are. And I finally figured out who I was, not what I was supposed to be, and led to transitions pursuing doctoral level study at higher education and then in corporate education and so on and so forth. So I finally had the courage to let go of what I was supposed to do and pursue what I wanted to do. And I want to be very real, Nor. I mean, I had the ability to do that Not everybody can just chuck their real job and go pursue something they want to do. I was able to figure out how to do this and pay the bills. And a lot of people thought I was crazy as a dreamer, but I didn't. And it's just very fortunate that it all worked out for me. One of the things that I've always admired is in almost every conversation you bring up that currently you have a dream job. So talk about the difference between a clinical professor and, again, most business leaders, perception, or the tenured professor. So talk about the difference between those two for a second. Glad to. A tenured professor at a major research university where you and I work is what you might think of when you think of a professor in the movies. They're uber intellectually gifted. They're very serious about their research and they create knowledge and they write serious papers and they pursue Nobel Prizes and then they teach and they have this intellectual giftedness that makes people just sit there and listen to them. And a tenured professor is responsible for creating some new knowledge. It could be in engineering, it could be in human medicine, it could be in some sort of sociology, right? A clinical professor is different in the sense that we typically have, quote, real world, unquote, experience, a record of accomplishment in business or law or medicine. And with all that practical experience, we then have the desire to teach and coach and mentor. And we have to have a skill set that helps us do that. So you have to be good at listening and talking and writing and engaging an audience. So it's people who have a lot of practical experience 
first, and then they have a love of teaching second. And when those two factors come together, there are positions in the academy called clinical or adjunct where we don't have tenure and the responsibility for doing serious research and creating knowledge. We instead have responsibility for being hopefully great teachers and coaches and mentors to people who want practical perspectives to complement the research perspectives. Did you mention that you actually are measured by like the net promoter score? Is is there some sort of a legitimate experience-based metric from your students of how Paul Corona teaches? Yeah, it is very much like a net promoter score. It's an ultimate evaluation of a person's teaching effectiveness. And there are all sorts of factors that go into it. But the bottom line is, what is the net effect of the learning quality? And that's an indicator of success in the classroom. And especially for people who are clinical faculty who don't earn tenure for their research, these metrics are very important. In other words, if people like you and I don't get high ratings, nor we're not going to be asked back. It's as simple as that. So you actually have to earn your keep. (laughs) You have to earn your place on that roster. Yeah, exactly. And as you know, that doesn't mean we are trying to just be popular or likable. I mean, we have to be challenging. We have to be rigorous. And it all has to come together. Got it. So as you and I are talking, in the midst of this global pandemic, higher ed is going through some challenges. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's going through in academia with this pandemic? That's a great question. So at Northwestern University, at the Kellogg School of Management, where I am, we are experiencing things that you read about in the popular press as well. So people are trying to make sense of the reality that we have to keep all students and all staff and all faculty safe with proper protocols for physical health. Additionally, because of the pressures that these situations bring, we have to help people stay emotionally well. Once people figure out how to do that, then we can deliver the learning. And it's a combination of on-site and online. And when it's safe to do so on-site, that's an option. When it's not, it's online. And what I'm experiencing, as I mentioned, what you're reading in the press suggests that it's always going to be some sort of blended approach. Universities and colleges want to and need to keep people safe and also deliver the learning. So some online, some on-site is what we're seeing. And to add to that, people have been talking for years about trying to go to the extremes. Oh, let's make everything all online because on-site is inefficient for reasons of travel and waste. And well, we are now seeing that you can't put everything online, okay? Nor are we seeing the ability to put everything only on site. So we can't be so locked in the past that, oh, everything has to be on site. Everything has to be face-to-face. That's not true either. And so this pandemic has helped all levels of education, higher ed, secondary ed, primary, realize that these digital technologies are fantastic, but they are not an only solution. And we have to adapt and essentially keep the teaching and learning processes that Aristotle started and modern educators are using today. So, and I do appreciate that. Our audience may know I have an 18-year-old daughter who's headed to Georgia Tech this fall, and we're getting you know regular emails from them about really trying to do a lot of broad spectrum of different efforts to just, as you said, keep faculty, staff, students safe, but also deliver the learning that we're paying for, right? So I get it. My question of you is, I want you to take now a future lens. 
You and I both know Scott Galloway over at NYU Stern. And recently he wrote a scathing blog post and has been a big advocate of, I think he called it USS University, of how higher ed is headed for reckoning. So Paul, as we look at higher ed in the next decade, in the next two decades, do you get a glimpse into how it may evolve? What does that future of higher ed look like? I'll give you a peek at my crystal ball, which may be different from Scott's, may be different from that of a university president or any business leader like those that you coach. I think building on what I said a little earlier, we have learned in the last three months that the digital technologies are vital and are fantastic. However, we have also learned that they are not the end-all, be-all of efficiency because the effectiveness doesn't always follow. So if you look down decades from now, my best guesstimate is that we will have the technologies fine-tuned and the on-site delivery fine-tuned in a way that these two things complement each other even better than they are now. Now it's under pressure for survival. I hope in 10, 20, 30 years, we are using these things in a complementary way to thrive, not just survive, to thrive, to deliver world-class educational experiences. Now, in so doing, as you can imagine, as a business leader, Nor, who works with people in the C-suite, there's some Darwinian effects that may happen in higher education. You're reading headlines about this now. Those institutions that have safe endowments, those institutions that have high demand in terms of applicant rates, those institutions that have all kinds of faculty are going to have the resources required to weather this storm and maybe do better in the future. What we've got to do is hopefully help all the other institutions who are not quite as fortunate to come along and stay engaged so that we continue to give access to all people so everybody has access to higher education. And if I may, proper K-12, this is a tough thing to deal with. And it's been going on since education started. Everybody's an expert in education. Everybody's got an opinion. And education reform has been going on for 200 years. So I hope in the next 10, 20, 30, we learn from this experience and ultimately improve the quality of the education results and processes and maintain and improve access to education so that everybody has a chance if they do the work because they are given access to opportunity. One of the challenges with higher ed, and you and I both saw Rob Nail from Singularity present the evolution of how the content they're presenting and how they're trying to really prepare the next generation of knowledge workers to come more adapt at embracing new approaches, new ideas, creative problem solving, so on and so forth. How do you believe the content? Obviously, we talked about technology and delivery, and I agree with you, I think a hybrid of the two is going to evolve and create more immersive experiences than just the physical ones. But how do you believe the content may evolve? Is Kellogg, are you guys teaching AI in your curriculum now? Are you teaching deep data analysis? Is there a course I can take on autonomous vehicles and the business models of autonomous vehicles? Give us a glimpse into Kellogg's curriculum and the evolution of that. Kellogg, fortunately, does have experts. These are the tenured folks you talked about earlier who have depth expertise in these areas because they've made a career out of studying them. Artificial intelligence, analytics of all sorts, entrepreneurship, innovation. There are people doing that kind of research, doing that kind of teaching at Kellogg. And in terms of what's the content going to look like in the future, I mean, I think that's a tough call for any of us to make. If you talk about that 20-year horizon, Nor, 
20 years ago, we didn't have iPhones and we didn't have AI as we see it now. And so if technology advances, if new innovation in business advances, if innovation in medical science and engineering advances noticeably differently, then the curriculum will follow. Now, as we both know, higher ed isn't necessarily known for being able to pivot quickly, but higher ed, especially a practical business school portfolio, must evolve to keep up with new technologies. But I don't think higher ed is going to drive the new technologies as much as entrepreneurs will. Steve Jobs did his thing, and then scientists followed him, I think, more than scientists gave him ideas that he brought to market. Does that make sense? It does. I like that close coupling between advancements in business in medicine with higher ed. And I agree with you. I think as higher ed embraces moving and pivoting with hopefully more speed and agility, it will remain more relevant. So we're talking about curve benders as these strategic relationships that come into our lives. And Paul, not just dramatically impact what we accomplish, but profoundly really shape and change who we become. Can you think about in your life, in your journey, one or two individuals that have had that impact on you? Yeah, I can. Before I talk about those two individuals, I hope it's okay if I just acknowledge my father, who would be 99 if he was alive. I don't know if he was bending curves for me when I was a child, but I learned how to work hard from him. And that was a foundation and to be ethical. And then the true curve benders in the sense of your construct and what you're doing to help the world be greater. I would say Marshall Goldsmith and Harry Kramer. So Marshall, I've been following for over 20 years. And as you mentioned earlier, you and I are very fortunate to be mentees of Marshall, part of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 group. And from Marshall, I learned how to be a coach. And his niche of coaching suits me very well. And that changed the trajectory of my professional life. So he was an obvious curve bender to me. Then later on in my professional life, in my 40s and 50s, I've had the pleasure of meeting and working with Harry Kramer, who was the CEO and chair of Baxter, the $12 billion New York Stock Exchange healthcare company. And he is also a private equity expert in the healthcare space. He's on 10 boards. He chairs five of them. He won professor of the year at Kellogg. So from Harry, I learned about what real leadership is like. In that Fortune 250 space with the pressures of Wall Street, the pressures of life and death business, and doing business literally around the world with 50,000 employees under you, and also how to be a world-class mentor and just wonderful human being. I cannot sing the praises of Harry Kramer any louder. It's not hyperbole. He's just a wonderful human being who was a world-class CEO and is now a world-class mentor and teacher. In January, when you and I revisited, I was really moved by his faith and how important that is as guardrails in his leadership. I was floored. He doesn't watch TV. He just wrote a book, I think 168 Hours is his latest book. Yeah, it's called Your 168. And he basically talks about we all have 168 hours in any given week. What will you choose to do with it? Where will you choose to invest it? So in thinking about guys like Marshall and Harry and those that really impact our lives in a profound way, do you believe there's some common traits? Do you believe there's some threats in how one becomes a curve bender in somebody else's life? Yeah, 
I know you're literally going to be the expert on this with your team. So I can give you my opinion, Nor. To me, a person who earns that sort of label of being able to be a curve bender likely has three things going on. One is knowledge. Two is skill. And three is mindset, or you might prefer the term attitude. In other words, they really have to have depth expertise in what they're talking about. They know it inside and out. They're qualified to be a curve bender in this space. Then they've got the skill, meaning the ability to share that knowledge with others as a leader in a boardroom, as a teacher in a classroom, as a coach in a restaurant. The ability to ask great questions, to listen deeply, to share information and tell the story so that the recipient gets it. That's a skill. That's a gift that can be developed. Sometimes we're born with a little bit of the capability. And then the third thing I mentioned, the mindset or the attitude, I think you've got to love to help people get better. That's how I like to say it. You've got to love to help people get better. And if you love to help people get better and you have the skill and you have the knowledge, then you have the ability to be called a curve bender. If you don't have all three, I think it's probably tough to earn that label. Love it. And thoughtful as always. So, you know, I'm not going to let you go without talking about Lee's three habit systems. <laughs> so for our audience, I was fascinated when I saw this from you the first time. Talk a little about what that is and why it's so important to you. Sure. So the Lee's three habits system I created with Marshall Goldsmith's guidance and the partnership of Eddie Rosas, who's an Emmy winning animator for The Simpsons. So the Lee's three habits system is designed to help people become truly happy in life. And it's based on the idea that most people do want to get happier. And instead of demonstrating Lee's three habits, which are asking, listening, and giving, most people do the exact opposite. They tell, talk, and take. And when you tell, talk, and take, you alienate people and you muck up your relationships and you actually become unhappier. So the Lee's three habits system improves relationships and happiness by getting people to ask, listen, and give more than they tell, talk, and take. And it works in our personal and professional lives. And your expertise in relationships and the productivity around it is complementary, in my opinion, to this least three habits system, because I'm trying to help people build stronger relationships and be happier on a more intangible level. It's that feeling you have when your head hits the pillow. How are your relationships with your loved ones and your colleagues and your friends? The system is designed to do that, and it consists of three parts. One is a micro-movie, three-minute movie. I mentioned that Eddie Rosas animated, and I wrote, and it gives you the concept. Two is this handbook, which is only 30 pages long. It summarizes the concept. And if I could have written it shorter, I would have. It takes less than 30 minutes to read. Three is this 90-minute workshop I do if people want to go deep and get practice. Love it. It's typical Paul Corona that it's practical, it's bite-sized, it's applicable, and I can immediately go put it to use. <laughs> I'm not creative enough to do anything else. Not true. This has been great. For people who want to get in touch with you, learn more about you, your work, what's the best place to send them? Well, thanks for asking. My central website is paullcorona.com. And that's essentially where people can find out who I am and the services I offer. This is on top of a very demanding full-time role I have at the Kellogg School, which I love. So I actually have a little bit of time to do this stuff on the side, and I love to do it when I can. This has been great. Paul, thanks for being a guest on the Curvebenders podcast. Great ideas, insights, conversation as always. Appreciate you. Appreciate time and the insights. 
Nor, honored to be here. Love to hang with you at all times. And it's even fun on the air like this. So thank you. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR Forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with my friend Paul Corona. Three comments Paul made during our interview really resonated with me. Number one, I got to tell you, I love the role of a clinical professor. And you can hear his passion for teaching, for mentoring, and really combining great ideas, great frameworks, great academic constructs with the practical, the pragmatic. And how do we go apply great ideas out in the market? Number two, uh, I, I love his comment of you have to love helping people get better. If you want to be a curve bender in the lives of others, that part is really important, is in really elevating others, in really improving their condition. And you've got to have a genuine passion and a love for doing that. Number three, I would highly, highly recommend you to look into the his Lee's three habit system, uh, specifically his ask, listen, and give versus tell, talk, and take for really true happiness. So I've been intrigued by that for a long time. It's simple, straightforward, but really impactful for both individuals and teams. Again, his is Lee's Three Habit System, and you can learn more about that at paullcorona.com. That's his website. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so check them out in our blog at norgroup.com slash blog. I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work, so I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag Curvebenders podcast, so make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. 